They're coming to get you, Barbara. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life. This week on a podcast from beneath, it's our William Castle double feature, House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. So, Aaron, what do you think about William Castle? Interesting, interesting guy. I mean, these, uh, these films, like, I, I went back. Whenever y'all said you were going to do these films, I'm like, okay. And I, I looked into it, and I'm like, oh, well, he, he uses Vincent Price a lot. <laughs> and uh, these, these, these films, they're, they're neat for the time that they came out. And they, they kind of have that original kind of horror element. You know, they tried to be spooky and everything. And I, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I like how he... <laughs> I guess was it a thing back in back in when these films come out where the director, kind of like um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, would come out and say, "Good evening," like he he came out. And he's like, "I must warn you that this and this is going to be." It was kind of to amp up the crowd, I guess. So, um, but that's what I liked about you know William, and then that's what I liked about these movies that I watched. He was almost like a what, like a carnival barker when he would come out. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, and, and that's that was that just added to that that fanfare. You know, he was he was trying to get people. Let's get this going. And hey, I'm going to warn you. You know, uh, this is going to be scary. There's some imagery in here. And of course, you watch it now, and we've already been uh, tainted by uh, what we have now, which is everything you know even practical effects are not uh that impressive anymore you know you got cgi and they can take you wherever um but uh yeah i I really enjoyed it it was a good throwback good throwback films william castle who whose uh real family name was schloss which means castle in german he changed his name to castle and he worked for, uh, I guess, about almost a decade uh, doing uh, director for hire jobs, uh, doing things like the Whistler series. The Whistler was a radio drama that was turned into a series of movies. And it was similar to The Shadow. Uh, the Whistler never actually appeared in the films. They were individual stories that had the Whistler as a narrator. Uh, and uh, those enjoyed a fair amount of success. He did one film uh, on his own uh, for uh, Cohen. Uh, I forget the, uh, what studio that was. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, the first film he made was, uh, was not a, a big success, but uh, the second film, the first film that he produced himself uh, was Macabre. And that was a big success. And that's where he started to come up with the idea of having gimmicks, uh, you know, to try to lure the audience in. He started apparently uh, when he was younger, he was a fan of the theatrical version, the play of Dracula. Apparently he attended the play uh, so frequently that he became acquainted with Bela Lugosi and Bela Lugosi recommended him uh, for some position on the in the touring company, so I guess you could say that he started his career with uh, with Paul Lugosi and Dracula. But uh, it's interesting you mentioned Hitchcock because uh, Hitchcock was paying attention 
to William Castle's success, when he had the, a big success with House on Haunted Hill, uh, Hitchcock was paying attention uh, and he thought to himself, if this guy, who was a lesser talent as a filmmaker, if he can have this big hit <laughs> with a low budget black and white horror movie, then why, you know, why, why shouldn't I? So Psycho was inspired to a certain extent by William Castle. Uh, and I don't know who got there first as far as introducing the movies. Uh, the business, uh, when you see some of the trailers for uh, Castle's films, it starts with him in silhouette, sitting in a director's chair with a big cigar sticking out of his mouth. Yeah. And that almost resembles Hitchcock's famous <laughs> silhouette that he started his TV show with and uh, often appeared in, his, in the advertising. I don't know who got, who got that first, but they both were aware of each other. After Hitchcock sort of imitated him with Psycho, uh, he imitated Psycho by doing a film later called Homicidal, which was almost, a, I guess you, you could fairly say it was a ripoff of Psycho. So uh, also when you look at House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler, they look like episodes of Hitchcock's TV show. Yeah. They have the same pro production values and same style you know, of storytelling. But uh, I always see uh, William Castle as sort of like, he's similar to the character that Vincent Price plays in House on Haunted Hill. He's this sort of like a host at a Halloween party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And nobody is really expected to really be scared of anything that goes on in the movie because none of it is really all that scary, uh, but it's just fun. And it's, I guess, considering how I uh, criticized the changeling in our last episode, some people might say, well, how could you possibly let this, these films off the hook? Uh, <laughs> but the Changeling had ambitions that these films didn't, don't have. These films are just meant to be entertainment. They're just meant to be disposable fun. And let's be honest, any film that has, a, uh, that has vibrators installed in the seats in the theater, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a film that's meant to be yeah. taken seriously, right? It's not, yeah, it's not winning any Academy Awards that no. year. And he didn't. No, but, but you also, you know, on these films, especially because I, I, House on Haunted Hill, you know, they did that remake. And at the time that came out, I did not know that was a remake. So then I, was, I went back and I was like, oh, crap, you know, uh, Vincent Price and everything. So watching this again, this is like my second time watching it. And I, I don't know. I, I just appreciate, you know, the acting in it. And it, it wasn't horrible, but I get what you're saying. It was, you know, popcorn. Let's go out and have fun and watch this horror movie. And, and some of the stuff in it is, you know, the same old tropes, you know, the chandelier falling from the ceiling. And, oh, why'd that happen? And, you know. <laughs> and Which also happens in The Changeling. Yeah. <laughs> what? <Well, I, laughs> really chandeliers are dangerous things yeah. i know don't go in any place with a chandelier because it's gonna fall um well you know what yeah it, that, that that but that just shows you that you know the guy that uh, the, the directors of that time you know or the of you know when they made the changing of that time they grew up watching these guys so they're like oh i want to have a chandelier part. remember when we first saw that when we were kids I could see a little kid going to this movie back when it came out and being like, oh my God, that's crazy. Look at all this stuff happening. 
and it really influenced them. And, and you can see that in films that are later made yeah. by these other directors. Well, when I see these films, I sort of it reminds me of uh, the um, Bond films, particularly the uh, uh, from Goldfinger on uh, throughout the Roger Moore era, from the you know the Goldfinger and the Sean Connery era to the to uh, all of the Roger Moore films, where they know that the plot doesn't make any sense. They know it's silly and ridiculous the ideas. <laughs> They, uh, the idea is to put all the stuff in front of the audience that the audience came to see. And that seemed to be his real ambition. So if you came to a William Castle uh, ghost story, which uh, some of his other films like um, 13 Ghosts uh, were actual ghost stories, House on Haunted Hill, not so much. They talk about ghosts, but we don't ever get to see any. Yeah. But uh, in, in, if he says in the advertising there's going to be a ghost in it, then there's going to be a ghost somewhere, you know? Uh, and in House on Haunted Hill, he makes up for the absence of uh, actual ghosts by having all these other apparitions like the skeleton and, you know, coming out of the acid and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And of the course, bat, the, the bat of acid, the bat, bat of acid. acid. <laughs> Every house uh, should have one. <laughs> that guy opens it up, I'm like, everybody's just going to stand around it. Like, you're, you're pretty close to the bat of acid. You know, the interesting, like, the interesting yeah. thing is the, the exterior shots he has of the house were the Ennis house in Los Angeles, which was uh, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So it was a more of a modern looking building on the outside. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that building where they also shot some stuff for Blade Runner, I think. It's hard to imagine that house from the outside having an acid pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but that's, that's the thing, all the, all the little touches, right from the start, as soon as they come in the door, the chandelier falls, there's blood dripping from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's, she, she finds a head in the, in the, uh, in the, her yeah, luggage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all, all of those things, like anything we can think of to throw in, doesn't matter if it makes sense. Uh, when Richard Long, the ostensibly the hero of the, of the, of the movie, when he, finds the head in his closet, pops up in his room. He grabs it and he brings it downstairs and he plops it down on the table. And there's never any mention of whether or not that's supposed to be a real head. Or... <laughs> yeah. Is, is that a prop? Or... Uh, and Elijah Cook, who we've, we've spoken about before, uh, he was the guy that shows the, uh, 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 Rosemary and Guy around their new apartment in Rosemary's Baby. Right. Yeah, he looked, uh, when I see him, he looked really familiar. I'm pretty sure I've seen him on a bunch of other things. He, was, but... he, he played very similar roles in a thousand movies. Yeah. Over First movie that I think he was known for was um, Maltese Falcon, where he plays uh, the gunzel of the fat man, the, the, the fat man's assistant, who's always threatening everybody with a gun, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he had, a, yeah, he had a long career. He was doing similar roles up into into the 70s uh so you know he was a very familiar face yeah, he had uh, that look of like he's probably i probably seen him on right. andy griffith's yeah. show <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he probably was on all the tv shows all yeah. the variety shows yeah but uh him going around basically telling you all the things that you're not going to see in this movie you know and then yeah. this happened and then this happened and they never found the heads you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and that that's great because in a way, if you can show something, at least have somebody there to describe it. It sort of adds to the, the flavor, you know, of, of the film. So all the talk about ghosts inhabiting the place, uh, that 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 you know, there aren't any real ghosts in the film, but it still adds to the overall effect. It's an old dark house movie, really, more than anything. And that's a genre that goes back to silent film era. And it's funny, they don't make those movies anymore. I tried to get a little bit of the old dark house feeling in my movie, Demon Resurrection. But, you know, you, the premise is usually a bunch of people who don't know each other. They end up somehow in an isolated house. They've either, either been brought there for uh, uh, the reading of a will or right, uh, yeah. somebody that they don't know has invited them to a party and they've all showed up. Ten Little Indians, the Agatha Christie, probably her biggest success, uh, which was done as a film, um, and then there were none. Uh, that is very similar. As a matter of fact, there's some scenes in Haunted, House on Haunted Hill that are right out of, and then there were none. Uh, the whole idea of people coming to a house, uh, they never met the host, they don't know why they're there, they've never met any of the other guests, <laughs> and yet they come. And in this case, the reason is because they expect to get money. Uh, so, it, you know, a lot of the things don't make sense, but it's still fun. The idea of just putting in the shocks and not worrying about whether or not it makes sense later. Like the biggest shock that in House on Haunted Hill, the one that everybody always talks about, is that moment when the uh, woman, the old woman appears. Yeah, she's just, yeah, well, she's just standing behind her. Right. Yes. And she appears to be uh, floating on a on a, a gurney or something, <laughs> yeah. a dolly. She just floats right out of the scene. Now, a few moments later, she's identified as being the the blind, the blind maid. Yeah, her and her, <laughs> her and her husband are the uh, the housekeepers. Uh, but why should she why she should be floating that way? I don't know. Uh, but it's effective, and that's the scene everybody remembers. So it seems to be. Yeah, I think I think if the movie would have been a little bit darker, I'm talking about lighting wise. Right. Seemed like everything is a little bit too bright. It didn't have that real good creepy sense to it yet. It was well, too and it's black too well and white. Lit. So I mean, I, you know, like I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they didn't have that kind of, uh, I guess, vision yet, or maybe the director didn't think of it that way. I don't know. Well, in the 1950s, they were shooting everything as sort of a standard that had been developed about how lighting was done, and you see that in Hitchcock films as well. Uh, and Hitchcock was still using the same lighting techniques that he used in black and white movies, even when he was well into his color phase. Yeah, and I just think it, that I think that scene would have been more effective if it was darker, and then you wouldn't have seen the maid until the candlelight was brought up to her. You know, what I'm saying that she fades in with the candlelight. I think it would have been more effective. Yeah. Well, nowadays <clears throat> they probably feel more confident about doing dark stuff because they know how it's going to look on people's home screens and how it's right, going to look yeah. on movie screens. Back then, you never know what the prints were going to look like. You never knew how uh, the projectionists would be, uh, how diligent they would be at cleaning the glass in the projection booth or you know, making sure things were, the, the, the lamp was bright enough. So they figured let's compensate by making sure everything is brightly lit and sharp. Uh, I mean, it really looks like a TV show at the time. That's what yeah. Alfred yeah. Hitchcock show. Yeah, yeah. I noticed whatever lens they're using or camera using had a really shallow depth of field. All of the wide angle shots were kind of blurry, and then when you had a character in the front, everybody else in the back was kind of blurry. So I don't know what kind of lens he was using. 
Well, nowadays that's considered a very uh, this we've sort of flipped on that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back, back at back at that time, like people like Orson Welles were famous for having very deep depth of field. You could see everything in, into the far distance was in focus, and they prided themselves on that. But uh, nowadays, everybody wants the very uh, shallow depth of focus. So everything behind you is out of focus. Uh, change in taste, but it looks better in color film, especially to have a shallow depth of focus. Yeah. Because you get that effect. What do they call the effect when you get everything blurred? It's uh, is it uh, Japanese bokeh? Bokeh, bokeh, right. yeah, bokeh. Everybody likes bokeh these days. It's an Instagram filter, so it's easy for yeah. everybody to use. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to talk about how cool you know Vincent Price was. And this oh, he was born to play these roles. <laughs> Dude, he was he was just so cool. You know, he's like, yeah, this is my wife's uh, party. I'm throwing my wife's party here. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, and, and you know, he just he he was. How tall was he? I I need to look six, that up. Six four, six four. The yeah. dude, I, I I was like, this dude gotta be a tall son of a bitch. I mean, in the in I, the in the Tingler, the guy that plays his assistant had to be put on lifts because he was so short. He oh was really? Like five nine. <laughs> yeah. But they couldn't frame the shots properly because he was Vincent. They're like. So tall. Vincent, either get on your knees or we need to get this guy some lifts. <laughs> like, well, you do notice, <laughs> you do notice, especially in uh, Price's later films, that he does seem to be hunching over a little bit. Oh, yeah. Trying to hide how tall he is. Unless he's in like Dr. Fives where he wants to look well, as impressive you, you as know, possible. I, I think that, you know, with tall people, uh, I, you know, I'm not that tall, but I am a little over six foot. And when you're ducking down or you get, you know what I mean? Or you're hunched over, maybe he was hunched over writing stuff. You know, they, they didn't have stuff like that back in the day. So maybe he just kind of gradually started going <laughs> yeah. down. <laughs> I, you can almost see the director saying, Vincent, can you hunch down a little bit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a little lower. You know what? That, that could have been it too, where he always, hey man, we can't get you in this shot. <laughs> The small actors usually they put them on a uh, what do they call them a cherry apple box? box yeah apple yeah. box apple oh, yeah. box yes a cherry box a they, they they Tom some kind of fruit yeah. <laughs> yes well all the leading men uh, for a while there were all guys like five eight five nine uh, and I think it was probably because it's easier to shoot them you know the tall guys are harder to shoot but uh, but anyway I do agree that one of the things you really come to appreciate. Uh, when you watch uh, these two films is what a really good screen actor Vincent Price was because nowadays we always tend to judge acting in terms of is it real do, do we, does it, is it believably real is yeah. it natural yeah he had the ability to do give a very witty stylized performance and at the same time it seemed perfectly natural you know like in the in the tingler especially when he's talking with that guy that comes in you know the guy that plays such an important part in the in the, in the story comes into his uh, autopsy room at the yeah. Kennedy film. And that sounds like a conversation that could take place in real life. Very low key, very, you know, uh, natural sounding. Uh, so the idea that Vincent Price was somebody that always was over the top and always chewing the scenery, he was pretty selective in terms of when he chewed the scenery. Well, uh, and you, you had, that was his, that was his niche. You wanted a, you know, a nice little horror film. I mean, you got Vincent Price in there. And of course, I guess he was a big Edgar Allan Poe fan because he was in a lot of films that were based off of 
Edgar Allan Poe's uh, poems and books and everything. So um, he, he gravitated toward, he found his niche, just like anybody else in Hollywood right now. You can't, you know, like, okay, you're going to have an action film. So you have a list of people that you're going to choose for that. That would be a draw, but you can't put, you know, case in point, Tom Cruise in a movie called The Mummy. It's not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to make it action. And it's like, no, The Mummy is supposed to be, you You don't understand. Like, you can't make an action horror thing. It doesn't, I don't know. I, I could be, I could be pissing someone off right now. Well, we talked we talk before, could... we talked before about Vincent Price being in, well, uh, Last Man on Earth, and it didn't really work out. Uh, yeah. Because he wasn't that, that, he, he wasn't just that, has that he wasn't that, yeah. Yeah. You, you don't. You know, Vince Price don't go into a comedy or you know or whatever. He just you, you got to have him where in his element, and I think that was his element, and he gravitated towards it. Well, he, he did had, very well. He had a pretty uh, decent career on stage, and he did a number of Hollywood films. He, I guess, he was a contract player, but most of the roles he played uh, early on, he was in Laura, which was a fairly success, very successful film. Uh, but they, he always played. Uh, he didn't play the lead. He was always, you know, uh, secondary characters. Uh, and then he had this film and The Tingler. And he did, um, I guess before that, he did The House of Wax, which was a big hit. That's and then another he, good one. Then he did The Fly. And I guess the combination of all those movies, everybody started to say, that's the horror guy. That's the guy you go to if you want that type mm -hmm. of horror. And the interesting thing is that... Uh, there was a time when there were crowds of that type of guy. You know, you had Boris Karloff, uh, Bela Lugosi, uh, Lon Chaney, uh, John Carradine, Basil Rathbone did a little bit of it, Peter Lorre, uh, all these sort of go-to people. Uh, uh, Lionel Atwell, uh, somebody who played the Mystery of the Wax Museum, which was the character, he played the character in the Mystery of the Wax Museum that Vincent Price played in House of Wax. Lionel Atwell was terrific, you know, uh, but all of those guys seem to go away at a certain point. Now when we look back, it's like, who fits that role anymore? There's nobody really. There Not are, really. Uh, maybe maybe the, uh, Robert Englund playing Freddy Krueger. That's about the last time well, they had it, anybody. I don't know if anybody, it, it was funny because I mentioned another movie Robert Englund was in. I, he was in other films and his characters were kind of forgettable. I can't, there, there was one i can't remember what it was called but the one i do remember and people can't believe he was a part of was a phantom uh phantom of the opera but it was made in like 1994 right. or five somewhere around there and that one i mean it was not <laughs> it well, just wasn't good that, but, that probably yeah. was a, that was that was a uh, that was a, a an attempt to trade on the success that he had as freddy krueger right they said, well, now maybe this guy is going to be another big horror actor like Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or any of the other guys I just mentioned. Yeah, and it didn't really work because uh, all of those guys had the ability to play uh, not just villains and monsters, but they had the, they had a certain distinguished quality to it and they could really handle dialogue. I mean, Vincent Price wasn't British, but uh, other than the British actors, he, he was probably the only American actor who would do this type of dialogue and make it sound convincing, you know. Uh, some of the dialogue in The Tingler is hilariously ridiculous, 
Yeah, yeah I could definitely see Vincent Price as a Bond villain. You know what? He there you go. He would have fit perfect in that that role. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, I'm I'm surprised no one tried to get it. Maybe they did. I don't know. Well, I, he might I mean, have been. Donald, Donald Pleasance was a villain, wasn't he? That's wasn't right. he a Bond villain? There you go. Yes, he was. He, he was a last-minute uh, substitution for the guy that they originally picked to play Blofeld in that uh, You Only Live Twice. Uh, the guy they got to, uh, they wanted to play it, I, I forget who it was. Anyway, he got sick or he bowed out at the last minute, and they quickly brought Donald Pleasance in because Donald Pleasance by that time was recognized as a guy who, you, you know, you had no worries with him you knew that he was going to be able to do the job oh, yeah he may not have been Great right actor. he may not have been right for blofeld but i mean blofeld previously had been played by telly savalas so it's oh, kind of hard, hard to <laughs> imagine going from telly savalas to uh, donald pleasance but it looks uh, like he had a bad uh, bald cap on too uh donald pleasance or yeah or tony savalas donald pleasance when he played yeah. that part yeah, I, I wonder what part, uh, because he was going bald by that point, so I wonder why they felt that. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe the hair along the sides they wanted to hide, I don't know. But he also had that big scrambled egg on the eye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I, I know it, I've talked about it before, and, um, you know, these actors, you know, back in the day, whenever they made films, you had all these actors that could, they could sing, they could dance, they could do like anything, right? And and they could act and they remember their lines. And so I don't know if there's any actors today that uh, I'm in what I mean today, I mean like in 2021 that I would consider hey, that's a great actor. And it, actually, you could go back as far as horror films, you could go back to uh, the 80s i guess when you really weren't i mean the, the thing about these guys that we're talking about is that they were able to do things uh, they were able to fake things uh, nowadays yeah. everybody is concerned about being as close to themselves as possible that they want to give a convincing performance of themselves yeah these, guy, these guys were all doing very stylized stuff it was artificial but the skill that they had was to make something that was artificial seem real. Even if it doesn't seem real, it's entertaining to watch. You know, that's that, I think that's the secret. Vincent Price and some of those Poe movies that he did with Roger Corman, you know, they're entirely fantastic. There's nothing real about them at all. But they weren't trying to be real. They were trying to be entertaining fantasies, you know. Uh, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a lost art now. Especially watching these, uh, I, I was, uh, I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch these older movies. I had not seen them in so long, I, especially House on a Haunted Hill. And when y'all said that, I was like, yeah, let me, you know, I'll watch it. You know, last year I watched Phantom of the Opera. You know, that's a silent film. Another freaking chandelier falling down again. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed it, and I was like, okay. And now I'm in the mood to watch these these older films because you appreciate them more and and uh you know with with uh you know vincent price he just does a he does a fantastic job i i just think i was like this this son of a bitch is cool i like it <laughs> like he yeah. just some of those smooth the smooth guy smooth guy and some of the dialogue is really very witty 
it uh, is they have this thing in both and he only did two movies with william castle i'm surprised i would have thought that the success of these two films would mean that they go on and on and on but maybe by that time vincent price was already uh fielding offers from roger corman and 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 he moved on to other things but um uh one of the things that's repeated in in these two films is the idea that vincent price and his wife are practically, you know, yeah. at each other's throats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some, of the, some, some of the dialogue between them is really very funny. And the tingler, he has that scene where he comes into the house and her boyfriend has just left. Out the back door, yeah. yeah. And he finds the two glasses, uh, two drinks on the table, and he picks him up. <laughs> uh, what's the term he uses? Uh, uh, Double fisting. Yeah, there's, there's nothing like... <laughs> Nothing like a, a good a double fisted drinker. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, that, that's, that's funny stuff. And the, and the dialogue, not, not only is the dialogue witty, but it's delivered with such flair, you know, it really sings, you know, and they move through it like a shot. You know, one of the problems that you have very often with uh, lesser actors is that they want to drag everything out, you know, slow everything down. Usually it's because they don't know their lines. Uh, but uh, this just is like a piece of music, you know. Uh, so it's really fun to watch, and uh, it doesn't have. I guess in both cases, really, especially the Tingler, his problems with his wife doesn't have any bearing on the plot, really. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, not like House on Haunted Hill, where right. that's where, where really it, it is yeah. the premise. Yeah. Was I got to uh, give uh, Carol Omart, who played the wife in Stunning, Stunning Woman? Yeah, oh she yeah, was. She super was. attractive and a good actress. Yeah, she, she was keeping up with Vincent Price, no problem. You know, uh, that's what I miss in acting is that sort of uh, that flair and that that style and wit about the performances to, to deliver a line in such a way so that not only does it sound like something that you just came up with, but also it has the music to it that makes it delightful. You know, to the audience. And now nowadays everything is plottingly. Uh, real you know and gr gritty you know uh and that's boring i think to, you know, yeah I, I mean on the one hand they shoot movies nowadays what with all the cgi they shoot movies in a way that makes everything look fake but at the same time they insist on giving us characters that are always so common and and, and dull you know when was the last time you saw a character like the part that he played in house on haunted hill in a in a, in a, in a movie no you know? it's been a been a long time probably the remake <laughs> well, the remake yeah. um, they got Jeff, jeffrey rush to play yeah there. jeffrey rush he did now the remake they did i thought a pretty good job on the remake right. and jeffrey uh, rush yeah. being cast in the that those are some big shoes to fill literally and figured <laughs> those are some big shoes to fill and i admire the fact that even though he was a very well established actor he had no problem sort of paying tribute to vincent price's performance in that you know, it's pretty clear that he's uh, doing a little bit of a Vincent Price uh, homage there. Uh, yeah. So, so that that's admirable. I guess when you achieve a level of success like he did, and I guess he's passed away now, uh, you can afford to imitate people, you know, you, then it's an homage as opposed to, yeah. you know, anybody else, if they were doing Vincent Price in a movie, people would say, you know, that they were ripping him off. But... Uh, yeah, it's a sad day when all those guys, I guess Christopher Lee was the last of the great old time horror actors. When he passed, that was pretty oh, much yeah. it. Well, 
I, I mean, could you imagine, like, if, if you know, Vincent Price, I guess one of his last movies was uh, Edward Scissorhands. That's right, yeah. And that was, he did, you know, that was a, that's a fantastic film. I do enjoy that movie. But, oh, uh, yeah, that's, a, he, he went out on a high note with that one. He, he was lucky. He did, but imagine if he was still around. Say, Vincent Price, do you think he would be like on a, a Marvel movie set or Star Wars? I or <laughs> I mean, he could have been, but. Well, Christopher I'm kind of Lee, glad he didn't. You know, <laughs> Christopher Lee had one advantage as far as Star Wars, which is that George Lucas wanted him in the first Star Wars movie, and right. he turned them down. Uh, and of course, Peter Cushing was in the first Star Wars movie, so there was a tradition of Hammer film actors. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that Vincent Price would have had no trouble finding work. If oh he no, was still around. <laughs> I mean, towards the end of his life, he was doing things like the Thriller, uh, which was a big, I mean, it was the biggest record of all time for a while there, and his voice oh, yeah. prominently featured it. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, I think there's a line in House on Haunted Hill, which is similar to the opening line in Thriller, um, when he goes to the door, uh, to Richard Long's door, and he says, it's close to midnight. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the <laughs> first line of his narration in the Thriller uh, song. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was he was great, and uh, he, fortunately, he did leave a lot of other movies that are really terrific movies. I mean, you have on the one hand, you have uh, sort of a uh, critically acclaimed things like the um, uh, Witchfinder General, which isn't his most entertaining movie, but it's uh, it's considered one of the great, uh, I guess, folk horror type uh, uh, horror movies. But he also did Doctor Fibes. He also did Theater of Blood. Uh, he, he had a whole bunch of movies that are worth checking out. I think Dr. Fives is particularly influential. I have a feeling that people that did Saw were paying attention to Dr. Fives uh, when they came up with the idea. But uh, I don't know if you guys have ever bothered to watch Dr. Fives. It's pretty widely available. Yeah, I've seen it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But yeah. yeah, I need to revisit that one. And I think you could say that Vincent Price was at his best when he was uh, working with directors who really took advantage of that very flamboyant, stylized approach they had, you know, uh, films like Fibes, uh, which is very glossy and you know colorful and 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 uh, fantastic in, in in its themes, uh, and uh, I guess that also is true of Tim Burton, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Edward Scissorhands is not a naturalistic uh, type uh, world that uh, that he's portraying there right uh, no so, it isn't go ahead he did another thing for uh, tim burton he did a short called vincent vincent was that the name of it? or was it frankenweenie i forget which one it was did it the, short... yeah the frank <clears throat> frankenweenie that was a full-length feature movie oh well maybe it was vincent was vincent the short that he did that vincent price narrated uh could have been yeah, yeah. Oh. anyway I, I know he worked with him more than once i guess he liked him but uh, Christopher Lee actually managed to even get into Dark Shadows, the Tim Burton, the horrible Tim Burton. Yeah. <laughs> he popped, popped in for one, I think that might've been his last film. Really? That yeah. sucks for him. <laughs> uh, but he, he was also in The Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. Star Wars, so. Oh man. Now with the, the House on Haunted Hill, I thought it was a really good story. I was kind of expecting the Carolyn Craig character to be involved with what was going on. But then you get to the ending and it's just kind of 
Spencer Price tells you what happened, and <laughs> yeah, he says, I killed I my wife. I I let, I'll let justice didn't shoot take over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like the end of the story. And of course, our Elijah Cook character gives his last little now they'll, you know, now there'll be more ghosts in here. But it kind of just ends. I was just like, yeah, kind of a letdown ending, but still an entertaining movie. I just wonder if the the theater experience probably makes these movies a lot better. Yeah, I suppose that not seeing it with the, I mean, if you went to a theater and they had all that stuff, you would probably come away entertained, even if it hadn't made the movie more effective. You would just appreciate the effort that had gone into it, right? But um, uh, in some ways, like with Tingler, uh, the spaces that they left in the film for the audience interaction part, like when Vincent Price goes uh, to the, uh, what appears to be either a light switch or a public address system. I don't know what it's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be. But he goes to this little box on the wall and suddenly the screen goes black and we hear his voice. Uh, and there's a couple of things that are weird about it. First of all, he's telling the audience the tingler is loose without any, any, you know, the audience would have no idea what the fuck he's talking about, right? I mean, even when they see the shadow crossing the screen, which I think is a wonderful effect, even though it doesn't make any sense either, because what did the tingler do? It got inside the projector? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but it's, that's the thing. It's, it's like almost like a dreamlike effect doesn't make any sense at all but well, i assume whenever he i assume whenever vincent price turned the movie off and they and then he does the narration of you know the thing i assume that that was now we're not in the movie anymore this is whatever theater you're in the time he's yes. talking to you right. Right. right he's not talking to the people in the movie and that's what i just what i kind of assume. right presumably the reason why the lights go off which doesn't make sense why would you turn lights off in a movie theater when there's a crisis right yeah uh but uh, th that, when the lights went off, that's when probably they started hitting the button on those vibrating seats mm -hmm. to give everybody a shock. And that, and basically, he's telling everybody in the audience in the theater to scream. And I'm sure people accommodated him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it must have been fun. But it sort of leaves little gaps in the in the uh, in the film now because we don't get that part. Yeah, anymore. and I know they had to. Um redo the audio his his voiceover for the drive-in version because obviously you can't right. turn the lights out outside <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the there were there were a couple of versions uh, of both of these films with um house on haunted or no with the tingler there's a version did you see you guys see the version that has the color inserts yeah the one no. i watched the one i watched had the the water in the bathtub right. and that kind right. of sink was red which is a very startling effect when you see yeah. it. you're watching a black and white movie and suddenly there's one thing in the shot that's brilliant red, blood red. Like ketchup. <laughs> that was very effective. Yeah, it does kind of look like ketchup, oh, yeah. but even if it was ketchup, it's pretty startling to see yeah. it coming out of the out of the bathtub faucet. And uh, but you know, uh, and, and I guess for a long time on TV, nobody saw that, you know, because they just ran a black and white print uh, and the. Um, I don't know. I don't know how they. Uh, I guess they just had the skeleton flying overhead in the theater. I, I heard somebody say that there was some sort of uh, curtain over the device that manipulated the skeleton in, in the theaters. But anyway, all of that is lost to us. We don't get to see any of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, which I think is pretty cool because back in the day, that's what they did. You know, to get people involved and 
this is before well 3d so oh. you had vibrating seats or you, you could feel air or something going underneath you or a flying skeleton <laughs> you know just well i think people appreciated the effort and it, it created a sort of uh amusement park or circus kind of feel to the fun going experience i think it's true too that back then people had much more of a tolerance for hype you know if you went to a carnival and there was a guy out front saying come inside and see the mermaid you know when you're buying your ticket it's only a fucking nickel or whatever and you know you're, you know you're not going to see an actual mermaid it's probably going to be some old woman wearing a you know a, a sequin skirt or something sitting in a tub of water <laughs> Come on in, darling. Right, yeah, <laughs> <I'm your> <laughs> right. And uh, but there's something fun about participating in that kind of slight con, you know. Oh uh, yeah. And it was true of movie posters at the time, too, particularly low-budget movies. You knew when you were looking at the poster because they had some wonderful poster artists. You knew that the monster in the movie was not going to look anything like that. So the, <laughs> the poster was making a promise and it was sort of telling you when you see the movie, this is what you should be thinking of. You know, what we have in the movie isn't so good. This is what you should be thinking of when you watch the film. So it was a, it was a way of, of giving something extra to the audience that they couldn't give given the, you know, the budgets and the state of the art as far as special effects and things. Uh, and I think that's sort of part of what makes these films entertaining too is that you know you're sort of being, you know, you're not really getting what was advertised, but it's still fun. It's fun to take the ride, you know. And if you get oh, some real scares yeah. out of it, then, you know, that's a, well, a nice little extra. Well, I'd say it's probably what inspired when, you know, when people now do the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show oh, yeah. viewings oh. and they all come dressed up and... Yeah. Probably, you know, probably inspired all well, of that. I mean, a, a new Star Wars film hits the theater. People dress up for that too, or right. you know, uh, Marvel movies. People still do that. So it, there is fanfare for it. Um, I, I wish there was more for. I mean, that would be cool if a theater still did stuff like that. You know, and we got yeah. better technology. You could actually make a skeleton walk across. You know, in front of the stage or whatever, but in front know, of the movie screen. There's one advantage to making movies that really aren't that great. I mean, let's be honest, neither one of these movies is all that great as movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the advantages of having movies that aren't so great is that people don't mind if it's interrupted by a skeleton flying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not missing plot points if you're right. <laughs> closing I, your eyes from a skeleton. When William Castle read Ira Levin's book, Rosemary's Baby, he read it before it was published and he immediately bought the rights. And he's the guy that went to Paramount, Robert Evans. Do you know Robert Evans? Yeah. They made a movie about him. He was quite a colorful character. He was running Paramount at a time when they were really in the doldrums. And he came up with a slate of projects that made them the biggest studio in Hollywood at that time. Uh, Rosemary's Baby was one of those films. Uh, but when William Castle brought it to Robert Evans, uh, he said, I want to I want to produce this and I want to direct it. And Robert Evans says, <laughs> this fella, this Roman Polanski guy, he looks pretty good. He'll, he'll, he'll direct it. And in a way, it's uh, too bad. And it's also, you know, a great relief yeah. because we ended up with a great movie 
And but on the other hand, there's a part of me that would have loved to have seen what William Castle would have done with it. Yeah. Yeah. You go to the theater and they're throwing fetuses at you. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that he would have been smart enough to know because this was his attempt to go to being an A-level director. Yeah. I hope he would have been smart enough to know this just has to be a good movie and we don't do the gimmicky stuff. But there's still something kind of weird about when you're watching Rosemary's Baby and his name comes up in the opening credits. <laughs> William Castle, you know? Not that he was a bad filmmaker, because he wasn't. He was a you know, very solid filmmaker. I love the way he moves things along. And he actually got very good performances from his actors. But both films, the performances, not just from Vincent Price, but from the whole cast, is uniformly solid. There's nobody who's weak. I mean, some people complain about, about uh, the character in uh, House on Haunted Hill, Nora, the, the character who keeps screaming every time she sees Oh, her. yeah, yeah. But that's necessary for the plot because the whole idea of the movie is that these people are trying to get her so hysterical that she, she'll shoot Vincent Price. Yeah. So it's necessary that she be screaming all the time. But uh, everybody else is fine. I thought Richard Long, who went on, he had a lot of work on TV. He went on to play uh, in Nanny and the Professor for a season. I don't know if you guys remember Nanny and the Professor. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. I'm familiar with the TV show. This, along with my mention of uh, the Flying Nun in our previous episode, <laughs> <laughs> proof that I was, I had wasted a lot of time as a kid watching TV. But uh, he's actually very good. He has this, uh, all the other, because those type of characters, like the, the guy that we're supposed to accept as the, the leading man, the romantic lead, those can be very boring characters and irritating, you know. But he's actually very amusing and stylish. And, uh, you know, it works very well in the context of the film. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, if we give credit to directors for the performances of the actors, I guess we have to say William Castle knew what he was doing with the actors. Yeah, I think with The Tingler, I mean, he took this just outrageous story that made no sense. The, you know, this <laughs> parasite that lives inside everybody that <laughs> when you get scared, it you know, festers up until you scream. But he, you know, he, it didn't, the movie didn't feel that, you know what I'm saying? You're just, you're watching it like, that's, oh, it's a dumb story, but the, the movie's still entertaining. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's, and, and surely the guy who wrote, uh, the same guy wrote both films, uh, he was writing that witty dialogue. He must have been smart enough to know that the tingler was an outrageously absurd idea. <laughs> but there's also something about the, the, the idea of the tingler being sort of like a meta film. You know, it's constantly making references to the fact uh, that it's a movie, basically. Uh, they even go so far, I really appreciated the audacity of this. At one point, when the Tingler has gotten loose and they've captured it in the, in the projection booth, they put it in one of the film oh, cans. Film cans, yeah. <laughs> carrying around a film can. <laughs> so they have a scene in the theater, and they have the scene with the, in the projection booth, and they have this, the creature wriggling across the screen. Uh, and then they put it in a film canister and take uh, that back. I mean, it's like everything is refer referencing the fact that you're watching a movie, uh, which is, you know, obviously in intentional, you know. Uh, so I appreciate that. And I appreciate uh, the fact that they were so outrageous in doing such a ridiculous idea. Because I can imagine any other screenwriter trying to think of an idea coming up with, how about, oh, no, no, that would never work. Nobody would ever buy that. But uh, as a child, I thought this was the greatest fucking movie I ever saw. And I saw this on Chiller Theater one night. I thought, 
holy shit, this is great. Not only do they tell you that there's this creature <laughs> that's going to form itself on your spine when you get scared, <laughs> but they actually take it out and show it to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah see, that had that definitely had that early sci-fi, uh, you know, feel to it. The you know the them and you know, all those cheesy movies that had radioactive creatures or whatever but then you have this and it's just one there's just one tingler in it you know what i'm saying it's just a we got like eight characters in this movie <laughs> it's a small it's a small film but it's got this you know this outrageous story that kind of for some reason fits it then like you know like you said you've got his stuff with him and his wife being you know she's cheating on him and all this and it's has nothing to do with the plot but yeah, At least only, it's something, right? It's something. <laughs> the only reason apparently they bothered to do that is because they enjoy having those wonderful scenes between him and his wife, but also because they want to have a character who will plop the tingler down next to him uh, to attempt murder at a certain point. And when, <laughs> when her attempted murder fails, she just leaves. Yeah. Like, yeah. We don't even see her go. One of the other characters said, Oh, she's gone. Yeah, she packed her bags and left. <laughs> so it's uh, very, uh, you know, very obvious that she was just a functional character in the film. I mean, I always thought it was kind of funny that uh, she, she comes into the room when, uh, after they've just taken the tingler out of the body of the woman, and it's there on the table in front of them or in the little box that Vincent Price has for some reason he has a, yeah. a little box that's perfect size for a tingler <laughs> and she comes into the room and she sees it and rather than saying oh my god what is that you know uh instead she starts thinking hmm how can i use this to kill my husband yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and then she goes immediately to a desk nearby and picks up some what i assume was sleeping medication some people that i've read online interpret that as being some of the lsd that LSD, yeah but I don't think that that could be right, right? Because she's just knocking him out. She's not. She's not trying to. Yeah, she doesn't. Him. Yeah, yeah. It's not the same thing that he had before. Right. So uh, I assume it's just some sort of sleeping. Because he was giving the guy's wife uh, sedatives to to make her relax. So I assume that that's what she was using. But the whole idea that somebody could be such an evil creature that when she sees this monstrous thing for the first time, anybody has ever seen anything like it. And immediately reminds us to think about how she can make use of it to bump off her husband. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other, the the whole thing with the the our other couple, the uh, you know the 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 mute woman and her her husband, you know, the the people there in the theater, that seemed kind of like an outrageous story too. Like, how did he like? Did he plan this from the beginning? Like, as soon as her brother is executed, I'm going to go talk to the coroner because I know that he's doing this study on fear and he'll help me scare my wife to death <laughs> this is this is why i think of the bond films when i watch this because in the bond films it's always the same way the story makes sense while you're watching it when you think back on it you're like yeah. it doesn't make sense at all you're right it doesn't really make sense that he would be going to witness the autopsy of her his wife's brother i guess yeah that doesn't make sense why would anybody want to do that uh, unless he thought maybe, and here's where we start having to build our own story. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe he's going go. there on the assumption that he can somehow find some drugs or something that he can use against his wife, or maybe he can uh, he was uh, uh, going to enlist the aid of uh, Vincent Price. Well, maybe back when the movie was made, maybe it was a common thing for people to go and witness autopsies. I wouldn't maybe. think so. 
but he had this whole elaborate thing set up, you know, the blood in the bathtub and the masks and the, and she's like, how long was he planning this? You know, and then he had to wait for his perfect opportunity to meet Vincent Price so he could, you know, invite him over for coffee, which was another, you know, like weird scene. <laughs> yes. They didn't even drink yeah. coffee. <laughs> and I, and the, I can see why John Waters is so in love with William Castle and particularly the Tingler, because that woman is almost weird enough to be in a John Waters film. She's a, a deaf mute who happens to be a germaphobe. So she's mm -hmm. rushing immediately to wash her hands. And she's also um, paranoid about people stealing from her and she after she finishes washing her hands she has to go and check the safe yeah <laughs> uh but th that you know it's all those sort of little eccentric weird characters that make the thing fun to watch and the fact that it doesn't make sense doesn't really i mean it would be better if it made sense but if if he actually tried to make this movie make sense you'd have to throw away half of it right because, yeah uh, nothing no, holds up all the things with like, and he does it in two movies. He does it in Haunted Hill and he also does it in The Tingler. The idea of people using various props to, or masks and things to you know, create a haunting effect. Well, that, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, in House on Haunted Hill, uh, the dead wife appears outside Nora's window floating in midair, with a, a rope that she hung herself with snaking into the room and wrapping itself around her, her ankles not possible to do right even if it was possible it would probably take a day to set up the gag you know <laughs> and you would have to count on the person being in the right place and doing all the right things in order to you know they'd have to almost be like a theatrical uh, presentation so those are absurd um the guy in the tingler i guess he's uh, when he is seen with the props he's got the mask which i recognize and he has something that looks like scuba gear I guess because he was laying in the bathtub. All right. So the idea what, what there is, he's in the bathtub with scuba gear, waiting for the opportunity to pop up, pop his, his hand up. Yeah. Right, <laughs> and do that, that business. And when she runs out of the room, he jumps out of the tub, dries himself off, and runs around <laughs> so that he can be put on a, a gorilla hand, throw an axe. Uh, and meanwhile, he's also somehow operating all the doors and windows. I don't know. I don't know if they attempt to explain that at all. Well, uh, talk about elaborate as hell. It's when Vincent Price has that whatever contraction on him to make that skeleton move. When he's, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's a lot of gears and like wheels and everything. And yeah, the skeleton hardly moves at all. <laughs> yeah. I know, <it> just... <laughs> I was like, holy crap, that's a lot of stuff to go through just to freak people out or kill your, you know, well, I wife. Have a, I have a feeling that that contraption was, might have been similar to what they used in the theaters to uh, run the skeleton over people's been. heads. Because uh, I noticed there's a couple of shots there where the strings seem to be going up in a direction that if you were watching in the theater, they could, those strings could come down into the theater with the skeleton on it. So maybe that was the idea. But yeah, it is pretty elaborate. You could not just operate Pinocchio. You could do a whole, a whole, uh, no. <laughs> a whole show, you know. Couldn't you just had that little, what is it, the little sticks? And, you know, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he has this whole thing. And you could like, see, holy crap. You could see the little knob on the top of the skull of the skeleton. It's a dark, I don't know why they didn't cover that over, but uh, we're seeing all these things now in high definition when they were ran, uh, running theaters 
back at the time, there were kind of, you know, dupey prints that probably you couldn't oh, yeah. see all the details. So maybe that yeah, well, didn't matter. When I watched the Tingler today, I didn't notice, I didn't see any wires on the Tingler. I was yeah, kind of impressed. <laughs> I was like, how'd they do that? <laughs> it's funny you should say that because I read a review on the letterbox where the person was saying that in every shot, you could see the wires. I didn't notice any I wires. I didn't see the wires either. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, do you see wires on the Tingler? <laughs> no. I mean, we assume they were there. Yeah, you can oh, tell the way, you can tell by the way it was moving. Look like somebody. Wait a was, minute, this thing's in... not real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it looked convincing enough. I mean, it looked disgusting. That's the yeah. It could have been more wet. Uh, that would have made it a little bit more. You know, just looked dry. You know, what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, this so came out of a body, so. <laughs> I mean, you gotta you gotta forgive it for you know it came out of a certain. So what do you? Who is this person? Like. I, I could see the white. Well, I mean, you're watching a movie from you know like the, the <laughs> late fifties. I mean, what do you want? Yeah, what do you well, want? Well, anybody who goes to a movie like The Tingler expecting logic is going to be very frustrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Maybe some... put on something else to watch if you're going to be that mad about yeah, exactly, it. Exactly right. I so... just you got to forgive those. You know, I mean, there's even I have an old version of uh, The Crow. And there's that the the scene when Brendan Lee's shooting up the place. He jumps off the table. You can see the cables. Mm -hmm. You can see yeah. that because it was on a high def TV. But then I get the remastered version. Of course, you can you know they take all that stuff out. Well, that's what I appreciate about the remastered versions of uh, the early Bond films because I used to love Goldfinger. I still do. But the thing that always annoyed me was that you could always see the wires on the planes. Mm -hmm. You know. The plane scene at the end of Goldfinger is very important, but it was very obvious. I mean, it looked like uh, like <laughs> utility cable, practically. <laughs> and when they did the when they put out the the, the Blu-ray, they took all of that out, and that re I really appreciate that because I'm not such a stickler for you know preserving things the way they were. I want to be able to enjoy the movie, and it's really hard to enjoy uh, a film like that if you see the wires on the plane. But it James Bond's kind of a serious thing. Like the chases are meant to like, Hi. you know, yes. engage you. And it, and if you watch an older version of it on, you know, the TVs we have now, you, you know, get more definition on it. So you're going to see certain yeah. things. That's why they remaster them. And, you know, and a lot of the, in the theater, effects. you probably weren't paying attention. Just like case in point, what you said about the horror stuff. With House on Haunted Hill, people weren't paying attention to that. They were like, oh, wow, you know. And well, now we pay attention to detail more. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in a way, it's our loss because we have yeah. all this great technology that makes movies that look visually impressive, but we don't have any actors like Vincent Price anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, imaginational way. It really does. All this high depth. And, green screen it takes your i don't know i could be wrong but i i really do think that when you watch a movie like that and it's sad because i used to be able to watch a movie on tv and it and i'd be just fine but now with all the high definition stuff i'm picking stuff out and i don't want to but your eye catches it like right. what the hell is that you know <laughs> i don't remember seeing that but it, well, it is what it is in a way the uh when they used to do things with wires in a way it was uh it was there was a sort of uh a charm and a warmth to it not in not in every movie obviously like i say we don't want them in a bond film 
because we want that to be visually splendid and, and, and rich and, and expensive looking. And we don't want it to know that the, it's a chintzy little plastic plane that they're using. Uh, but in some films, you know, we were talking about um, Ed Wood in our last episode, right? The yeah. uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I guess the question came up of who was the first to start doing uh, parody movies, movies right, that, yeah. uh, and in a way you could sort of say that this is very early in the beginning of that. I mean, he's not really doing an out and out parody, but this movie House on Haunted Hill is a sort of a parody of the old dark house genre. There were, that was such a popular genre that starting in the twenties and going through the thirties and forties, there were so many movies done in that, uh, that type of film that when you go on YouTube and you do a search for Old Dark House, you get like 50 movies. Yeah. And, and they're all done by uh, little production companies that are no longer in business, uh, independent companies that maybe uh, did one or two films and then disappeared. And a lot of those are damn entertaining. They're terrible movies, but they're very entertaining <laughs> because they have that same premise. So this movie, which is what, 1958, uh, 54, 56, 58, something like that? What year are we talking mm, about? 59. 59. So this is right on the cusp of when things start changing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. when Psycho comes out, then movies change forever. And he's doing this little uh, homage to the movies he probably enjoyed watching when he was a younger man. Uh, you know, I mean, this film is uh, pretty close to being a comedy. The entertainment value it has nowadays is the, the, the laughter value, right? Yeah. The amount of laughs you get from it, from the witty dialogue, from the stylish performances, and from the absurdity of the plot. But uh, so it is, in a sense, an early movie parody. And as a result, it can't really be criticized because it's almost making it fun of itself, you know? I agree with that. I didn't think of it like that, but yeah. You it guys should, if you, really, if you enjoy the, this type of film, spend a couple of minutes on YouTube sometime and make a playlist of every public domain old dark house movie you can find. Yeah. I can, I can send you a list. I made a couple of playlists myself. Well, yeah. So, uh, send the list. I'm, I'm interested. I really am. Cause right now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of going through the recycle of, you know, all the movies I watched during this time, but it's nice to see something new, even if it isn't, brand new it's new to me and i i like revisiting things like that so yeah for sure i'd enjoy that yeah i'm gonna my plan was after i watch both of these i'm gonna go back and watch homicidal which mm -hmm. i'm gonna try to get that one and there was another one uh macabre macabre yeah the other that, that, that was his, that was his first one that was yeah. the first one he produced and directed he mortgaged his house to finance it oh wow uh, yeah. Uh, that's a gamble <laughs> and it paid off for him uh, of course i've heard his last movie wasn't was a interesting watch too the shanks shanks I've, yeah i've heard that's it's an the, interesting watch that's the one with uh, marcel marceau i believe so yeah yeah that was a weird idea to do a movie i guess uh, marcel marceau is the famous um mime mom yeah and uh the idea was that it was a is it a killer mime is that the premise? i believe so yeah uh, I haven't oh. seen it. I always put that in the sort of same category as um, Jerry Lewis's "The Day the Clown Died." Or it's a, a mute, oh, a mute wow. puppeteer uses a deceased scientist's invention to control dead bodies like puppets. Oh, okay. So uh, that's yeah. a little, that's a little mm -hmm. different. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I it, looked, it, looked, it looked interesting whenever I was researching other movies of his. Well, after Rosemary's Baby, uh, Castle wasn't really able to benefit much from the great success of Rosemary's Baby uh, because he had a health problem and he was sort of out of action for a while. And when he went back to producing and directing, uh, the appeal or the whatever sort of cachet that Rosemary's Baby had 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 sort of worn off a little bit because there had been other big uh, horror movies after that. So he ended up going back to doing stuff like Shanks. And he also, I guess his last movie was Bug, which seemed like a particularly unpleasant thing about uh, flammable cockroaches. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but he might have been, I think when, when it became sort of impossible to make movies like House on Haunted Hill, when that style was considered passe, I don't think there was really much place for for him, you know. Uh, he, he wasn't able to transition to like Alfred Hitchcock was. Alfred Hitchcock was able to go from uh, doing fairly stylized looking movies to doing kind of um, uh, slightly gritty movies like Frenzy, where he got stopped lighting things the same way and started lighting them like it was 19, uh, 1970s. You right, know? yeah. If you look at some of Hitchcock's movies, color movies that he made in the 60s, they look like they could have been made in the 40s. You know, the same lighting that you would see in a movie like Gone with the Wind, which was basically turn every fucking light on the studio on. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Vertigo definitely had that look. Vertigo very much. Yeah. One might be, and a lot of people like Vertigo more than I do. One could say that Vertigo, maybe that lighting effect, uh, that lighting look uh, fits the movie. But I think it hurts the birds. The birds would have benefited from being more realistic. You know? Yeah, I like those. I like the look of uh, Rear Window. I Rear thought Window, that was yeah. yeah, that was a good one. That's a terrific film. Incidentally, um, uh, the woman who plays the deaf mute in The Tingler is Mrs. Lonely Hearts in Rear oh, Window. Okay. When I saw every time I see, her, I say, I know that woman. <laughs> yeah. And that's how it is. You never really get to see Miss Lonely Hearts close up, so you only have an impression of her, and that's why it's kind of hard to rec recognize her at first sight. But as the same person and what weird weird creature she was yes yeah no wayne castle wayne castle definitely a <clears throat> interesting character uh i mean he had good ideas just couldn't do a lot with them i mean there was only what maybe how, how many of his movies did he actually have like the theater gimmicks uh well it did it from macabre 13 ghosts mr sardonicus a house on haunted hill the tingler uh and uh he tried something similar for uh bug uh he wasn't able to get them to install feelers in the chairs right the yeah so instead he did a little publicity stunt where he said that he had insured the, the cockroach in the movie for a million dollars oh wow <laughs> okay <laughs> but i think I mean, Depending and on what theater you go to, it probably has roaches anyway. That's right, yes. <laughs> that, that sort of reminded me when I was watching that scene in The Tingler when the necking couple argue and they split up and she mm -hmm. goes and, and it's pretty soon she's got The Tingler climbing up her leg. <laughs> yeah. That sort of reminded me of a movie theater I used to work in years ago, uh, which had a bad mouse infestation. And all during the show, the, the mice would be running over people's feet. And they'd come out every once in a while. There's a rat in there. <laughs> and the staff 
as one would always say the same thing. It's not a rat, it's a mouse. <laughs> it's a, oh, okay. That makes them better. That makes it better. Well, it does, I guess. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen in some theaters, I've seen roaches big enough that I thought they were going to take me to my seat. <laughs> <laughs> they probably be, would be better at that than the ushers that they have. Yeah. <laughs> Just the roaches have a hard time holding the flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, like I said, we, I mean, he was, he had good ideas. Uh, I think. I think if he if he were alive today, like not meaning you know being still alive today, if he was born in this era, I think he still probably could have had some. He probably could have done some stuff. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Whether it uh, be and you yeah. know just the interactive, you know, because I mean even I remember like interactive VHS tapes and interactive DVDs and Netflix now has interactive programming. Yep. So I, th I think he could have done really well in something like that. Yeah, well, he had the he had the benefit of being a, a competent director. I mean, there's a lot of directors that worked their way through their career in Hollywood, doing uh, you know B movies and programmers, and they never achieved the great success that Castle achieved. He was able to establish himself as a real force in the industry, even though his movies are not you know the highest quality. Uh, he was at that sort of middle level of sort of it's not garbage, you know. It's well shot and the acting is good and the scripts are good, but it's just not, it's not trying to be anything more than that. It's just meant to be fun. I always think of him as being more like uh, someone who emphasizes showmanship over storytelling. Right, yeah. His main concern was, do we have some sort of scare every few minutes? Uh, and the, how you get to the scare, he didn't care about. You know, He knew it was a calculated thing. He knew you had to have a certain number of scares as you go along in a film, otherwise people begin to find it boring. He certainly wasn't making movies like uh, The Innocence, but you know, uh, 13 Ghosts is nothing like The Innocence. 13 Ghosts is a gimmick film. You know, that's the one where they gave out glasses where if you wanted to see the ghost, you look through one part of it. Oh, yeah. You know, as like two, two lenses. Uh, but because the movies weren't really good, uh, not, not really great, they were just entertainment, he didn't mind the gimmickry, you know, it sort of made it fun. If the innocence had tried something like that, it would have ruined it, right? So his ability to do decent movies, even without the gimmicks, I think is what makes him memorable now. Right, yeah. Because yeah. there were other people doing similar stuff and their movies, you know, there were other people that were offering life insurance policies. And there were movies where they gave away uh, vomit bags, you know, uh, and things like that. <laughs> Uh, but the movies themselves aren't as memorable as Castle's film because they're not as well done and they're not as entertaining. So. Yeah. So, Aaron, would you uh, would you like to watch these in a the theater where they currently have the gimmicks going on? Because I think it would make it. I think it'd be awesome. I, I, I do too. I think it'd be fun. Um, I, like I was telling you know telling y'all before. I mean that I, I wish they still did stuff like that. You well, know? they still do um, from time to time. I know here in New York, Film Forum did they ran these movies and they did it uh, they did the made an attempt to uh imitate the uh the gimmicks uh but uh it's probably not something that's ever going to uh catch on again right. like, yeah it's like something the alamo draft house would do do they do that yeah i imagine they probably have maybe, yeah. maybe they do it yeah but like just your local you know whatever well, well yeah because all the theaters now are their chains they're not yeah, you don't have your, you know, independent mom and pop 
theaters that could do something like that. Well, also the problem is, uh, and I don't know how he addressed this, the, uh, the gimmicks work if you have a full house. What, yeah. ha- what happens if you just have one person in the audience? You're right. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing we should remember is that there was a thing, uh, the, there was a sort of phenomenon back in the, I guess it started in the 40s and into the 50s and 60s of the spook shows that theaters would have sometimes, mm-hmm. where they would have somebody run around with a Frankenstein mask on or have skeleton, you know, flying <laughs> around. Uh, and they would actually advertise it as a spook show plus a movie. Uh, and uh, so that was the thing. I, I, I seem to remember that in Ed Wood, isn't the gimmick that they're going to show the movie and then Dracula and Vampire are going to be in attendance? Yeah. And then, and the kids are throwing uh, juju beans at them, and uh, <laughs> so that was that. Uh, Ed, uh, uh, those type of spook shows are sort of similar to what he was trying to do. It's just I can't imagine nowadays why any filmmaker would want his movie to be interrupted by that sort of stuff. You know. Well, I guess I imagine too it'd be hard to do because like not every theater is going to have the vibrators at the seats and you know have wiring rigged up to drop a skeleton so i mean was that just a did he just take it to certain theaters and that's got that's where you got the experience or yeah i guess he he went uh, i guess it was almost like a uh, roadshow type approach where he took the thing you know to different uh states and different cities um do you know donald glute the guy who uh he was like an amateur filmmaker back in the 60s he was one of the first people to do like fan film superhero fan films yeah yeah he's doing like dinosaur movies now uh and uh he also is famous for writing the novelization of the empire strikes back and he would do uh comic books write comic books and anyway he was a a fanboy in his day and he was uh invited by i guess columbia pitches to participate in the publicity for 13 ghosts and he met William Castle and apparently formed something of a relationship with him. Uh, and uh, he said that they, it was, it, 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 he participated in the advertising or the promotion in Chicago. They had everybody make up as a ghost and they got on a, I guess on a flatbed truck or a trailer and they drove around the city making bullhorn announcements or playing recordings of William Castle's voice describing the movie. So that was one of the ways they would promote the film. That's another thing that we don't have anymore is that that sort of promotion of films with the, I don't know if you ever see like pictures of movie theaters that are running horror movies and in the front, the whole front of the theater is just made up of stills and standees and Mm -hmm. very elaborate uh, stuff. Nobody does that anymore. Makes me want to, makes me want to go buy an old theater and (laughs) just show these old movies. Yeah, it'd be fun, yeah. I don't know if there'd be any money in it, but there'd be fun. Might be. You'd have to charge, you know, $30 a head, but... (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Just to make your money back, but... Yeah, I guess. Well, there are some things that maybe we just have to accept. You had to be there, right? You had to be in that time in order for it to make sense and to try to replicate that effect in present day. I mean, I think that was where Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez stumbled when they did Grindhouse. They thought that modern audiences would understand what they were referring to. Hey, right, yeah. Nobody knew and nobody cared. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> of course, I, I can get a projector pretty cheap. I could probably just get that and a couple of taser guns and <laughs> just do a private showing in my backyard. 
Well, well, you know what the vibrators were in uh, the Tingler? Uh, something, some military thing. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Sur surplus uh, stuff that he bought that we that was used to de-ice planes. Yeah. Plane, plane wings. I guess oh, it created wow. a vibration that caused the ice to fall off. Right. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, so that's interesting. No, that yeah. is. So, Aaron, do you recommend people seek out these movies and watch them? Oh, yeah. I found them both oh. for free. So. <laughs> Well, House, yeah, on Haunt, I, House on Haunted Hill is in the public domain, so you can find it everywhere. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, that's where I actually watched it off of one of those websites that is public domain. And, um, yeah, I always encourage people to go back and, and see these types of films because it kind of, you get to see kind of the influence that, you know, these directors that make movies now or even before them, like in the 60s and 70s, these people took all of this and they kept going with it. And you could see the influence in it even today with, some, you know, certain things. I mean, they, everybody still tries to do the jump scare stuff, you know, and sometimes they do get you. Um, but yeah, I always, I, I always recommend older movies. Go check it out, make an evening of it. It doesn't take, what, an hour of your life to sit down and watch a, a good old, you know, old classic horror movie. Mm -hmm. I definitely recommend them. I mean, if for no other reason than Vincent Price and Carol Carol Omart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vincent Price, like I said, he was born to play these characters in these yeah. movies. I can't imagine anybody else doing them. Yeah. I mean, it was just, yeah, like I said, they're fun, nonsensical, but entertaining. And I, like I said, I think if I could see them in a theater with the gags, I think I would probably enjoy them a lot more. Yeah. I, I would love to see somebody try to do an old dark house mystery uh thriller like that you know with a little bit of a taste of the supernatural but not not too much and, and a little bit of a murder plot and a lot of the interaction with the characters that don't really know each other and they're stuck in a uh, isolated place the bridge is out or whatever it is you know uh i would love to some, see somebody do that nowadays uh nobody really seems to have any interest uh, which is you know <laughs> surprising but i sure recommend these films uh, it seems to me that what happens is uh, you love the stuff that you saw as a kid, uh, even though as you get older, maybe you re begin to realize that it's not really uh, high <laughs> yeah. art. Uh, it's like people say they always, re the James Bond that they like the best is the first actor that they saw play the role. So the people that grew up watching Sean Connery, they like Sean Connery or Roger That's Moore. the same with Doctor Who, whatever the and first Doctor, doctor you oh, watch, man. that's your favorite doctor. You I, know. I'm, I'm partial to George Lazenby. No, <laughs> well, there are some people that make a case. For I them. know, yeah, I'm not one of them. But, but uh, I, I guess like I could, well, I mean, would I be wrong if I said Woody Allen then? So. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! Well, he, he, was, he, he was playing Woody Allen's uh, brother, or what was he supposed to be? In casino, James right? Bond. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't even know who who did play James Bond in in, in that Casino Royale in that version. That was George uh, Lazenby, wasn't it? No, they they did a, a, a non-canon comedy called Casino yeah. Royale, and it had David Niven and John Huston and Woody Allen and who else was in it? It was like every Austin Wells, Peter yeah. Sellers. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh, I, Peter I, Sellers. Yeah. Uh, I was. Awesome. I, I guess David Niven was James Bond. James Bond, and now all the other people were. Sort of making believe they were James Bond. I forget what it was. Anyway, uh, that takes us a little away from the point I was trying yeah, to Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome uh, to the uh, second part of the episode, James Bond. <laughs> <Bobby. laughs> 
Well, we could cover that sometime. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm down. I I like. Uh, I guess I grew up I grew up watching a a little bit of Sean Connery, and then Roger Moore was the James Bond that I got introduced to first. So. Yeah, that was the he was the one that I was introduced to as well with Live and Let Die. And for I guess I was like I don't know 16, 15 or sixteen years old. There never was a better movie for a 15 or 16 year old than Live and Let Die. Yeah. Uh, every element of that movie was designed for me you know, at that age. But at the same time, I was watching the Connery movies on TV, and that was a big deal back then when they would run the old Bond films on ABC. So I sort of was between, I, I recognized eventually that uh, Sean Connery was the better Bond, but I always liked Roger Moore. I always thought he was. He had a great screen presence. In a way, he was sort of like the Vincent Price of James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a stylish, uh, witty, you know, easygoing sort of fellow. Yeah, I was going to say, I was kind of upset that none of our actors we mentioned in these two movies were in Colombo. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. God. What happened? <laughs> oh, Everything oh, no, leaves no. in Colombo. Vincent Price was in Colombo. Was he? Yes, he was. He, was, he didn't, oh, play, wow. didn't play the murderer, but uh, <laughs> he played a rival. Uh, the owner of a uh, rival makeup company uh, with the the episode about the woman that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not Vera Miles. Was it Vera Miles? Anyway, it's deadly, but uh, beautiful, but deadly is the episode. Yeah, I have to go back. I want to go back and find it now. Vincent oh. Price and Charlie Sheen and, uh, and Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, yeah. <laughs> not Charlie Sheen. Uh, they're both both in that episode which is the other wonderful thing about colombo is that there it's not just the one star they have always like some episodes like a three or four stars yeah. <laughs> everything always leads to colombo man it seems that way we're gonna have to do a separate podcast just all about colombo <laughs> <laughs> well, i look forward to that yeah <laughs> but anyways aaron where can everybody find you at on your <laughs> other shows oh man <laughs> um I'm a, I'm a part of a Rabbit and Red Radio. I got my show on there. Um, I'm also part of B-Movie TV. You can find it on Roku. And, uh, of course, on my social medias, reach out to me. Uh, they call me Mr. Poe on Slasher App, on Instagram, and Twitter. So. And you're doing, you're doing horror movies on your sci-fi side show all month long, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, this Sunday. Right. The Sunday kicks it off. So yeah, I'm very, very excited about this time. We get, it's nothing but horror movies and some, you know, it, it, it it's funny because you'll turn it on B-movie B TV and there'll just be some random horror movie. And I'm like, oh, wow, I hadn't seen this, you know? <laughs> so I have to go back on YouTube and try to get to the beginning of it, <laughs> so, you know, because I miss the beginning. But anyway, yeah, enjoy it. Everybody enjoy this time. It's fun. I would have been shocked if you weren't running uh, horror movies in this season. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not going to decide to counter program by running uh, Ingmar no. Bergman films or something. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So, William, where can I find you at? Well, I'm on Facebook and Twitter uh, under my name and I, my films, Demon Resurrection and Sleepless Nights, the upcoming Sleepless Nights. Uh, there, there are Twitter pages and Facebook pages for both of those films. And uh, Demon Resurrection, uh, just the DVD version, the, uh, this old relic from 2010, uh, there are copies being sold on Amazon. We're back on Amazon now. Nice, all right. Had a little trouble with Amazon for a while there, but Amazon is carrying the DVD again. And uh, 
Sleepless Nights, the restored version of Sleepless Nights, hopefully by the end, well, I won't say hopefully, definitely by the end of this month, that'll be finished and it'll be visible on streaming platforms in the months to come. So looking forward to it. And uh, before, before we leave, we have a t-shirt store uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we have a uh, podcast from knee shirts. We got the exclusive even resurrection t-shirt. I know so, uh, a couple of people already picked that up and um, what else? Oh, our medium page. Uh, oh, that's that right. Yeah. Yeah. Which and, I'm trying uh, to write for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing at those messages, but anyway, uh, don't we have a website of new and improved kind of website looking thing? Just, I mean, just just a medium is where we're gonna because I had I had wait I had way too many going at one time. So uh, I was like, okay. I'm just gonna use right. just the medium. It'll get so everything. So medium, out there. that's it. Yep. And uh, yeah, I just uh, I gotta do self promotion. I we always forget. Yeah. No. So, yeah. <laughs> Our T Public Star, go check it out. Yes, that's a good yeah. way to make a couple of bucks. Is this one of the tees that you're selling, or the one you're wearing, or? Uh, no, I'm wearing an X Men shirt. I don't know what oh. Aaron's got on. Oh, uh, Freddy Krueger. <laughs> oh, Freddy Krueger. Okay. Yeah, we don't we don't wear our own merch on the show. Like yeah, we probably should. Hey, hey. <laughs> oh, there the you hat. go. The hat. Yeah. I, I had that custom made. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a fun episode, and until uh, next week, we will continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made. All right. All right. Um, so I guess the next. The next film, I won't torture y'all with a crap film. Yeah, you, um, you, oh, have, you have to apologize for society, especially <laughs> since you dropped out no. the episode. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to. Shit come up. That was uh, all. That was your plan all along. I yeah. It was. I, I, I like to torture you. No, I think uh, it'd be very interesting uh, to do uh, that movie, Magic. Uh, Anthony Hopkins film. Yes. I think that was also, was that Robert Wise that directed that? I think, so. I don't know. Is that the one with the mannequin? That's uh, the, the ventriloquist dummy? The ventriloquist yeah, mannequin, dummy. Right? Yeah, whatever. It's not a mannequin. <laughs> <laughs> They're both made of wood. It's the same thing. It's close. I, I'll let you have it. But Burgess <laughs> Meredith's in it. And he does a fantastic job. And Anne Margaret's in it. I mean, that's a, I don't know. They had high... Good, they had high hopes for that movie. They they really pushed that movie, and it didn't didn't perform very well at the box office. And I think probably that was the reason why Anthony Hopkins went back to England, uh, because it was Silence of the Lambs that eventually, you know, resuscitated his. Hollywood I don't know. It, I, I'm just suggesting it because it oh, is yeah. a good well, movie. It is an uh, interesting film, yeah. But then uh, I heard you talk about uh, Frankenstein uh, versus. Uh, Oh my God! Abbott and Costello. No, no, no! It was the uh, it was Frank, one Frank, I watched. Dracula uh, versus Frankenstein. Is oh, it Frank that Frank. one where it they they advertised uh, Frankenstein looking like it, it? It wasn't originally called that. For some reason, it changed it to Frankenstein. It was like more of a space being. Oh, Frankenstein versus the space monster. There you go. Yeah, that one. I watched that a long time ago because. Uh, on the very first podcast I had, we were doing uh, monsters, and I decided Frankenstein was going to be, you know, Frankenstein's monster was going to be the one I chose. And I went through all these movies, and I stumbled upon that one. That, the, that's, and, uh, <laughs> that's quite a movie, I have to say. And uh, yeah, and I saw Dracula versus Frankenstein, and that was hilarious. The the guy that plays Dracula in that 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 was just funny. 
Yeah, he, he anytime he spoke, it was echoey. It was just yes. funny. Well, they had to do something to make him seem like Dracula, right? I guess. He looked like a porn star. <laughs> yeah, he did, actually. I think he was like an insurance salesman or something. <laughs> you want to play Dracula? I guess. But I, um, I, I think I've always had a, uh, a liking for that movie because, in a way, it's similar. It's not as well done, obviously, but it's similar to House on Haunted Hill in that it has that sort of an amusement park ride feel to it. Matter of fact, the amusement park features in the film, right? Uh, it takes place near an amusement park, and yeah. the Dr. Frankenstein character is operating, uh, running his own uh, horror house, right? He has like uh, uh, monster displays and gorillas. That's what was missing from House on Haunted Hill. It didn't have a gorilla. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, in these old dark house movies, there's usually a gorilla. Yeah. That, that's what I was going to take note of the dark house movies. Yes, it's worth checking out. I can send you a playlist if you. If yeah, you yeah, yeah. You can just yeah, just do that. That'll. that'll Please help me. do. And I have started uh, one of your scripts you sent me. Okay. Well. So I, I, so, I want to so, get back to so you. You tortured us with society, and I'm torturing you. With <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually I, I'm I'm enjoying it. I just need to sit down and uh, after you sent it, I sat there for like an hour reading and I was like, okay. And then I had to get up and do something. I need to go back to it. I need to no, have no, no distractions. Nobody likes reading scripts. I don't think they're not fun to read, but. Uh, no, I, I, I enjoyed what I read. I just need to sit down and do it. I got the attention span of a fucking bird, I guess. Like, well, I, I, I know you're a wealthy person, so maybe we, I can convince you to invest. In <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I was. Jesus. You, did, you didn't actually enjoy society, did you, Aaron? No, the reason I picked it was I thought we could do something that we could make fun of. That's okay. Why I got that. No, it's not. Yes, it's my favorite, most okay. favorite film ever. I was just, I was no, just wondering. Uh, it, 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 it was something silly, and I thought we could have a couple of laughs. That's why I picked it. Yeah, we, well, uh, we, we destroyed it at the end say. of uh, a <laughs> Plan 9 episode. <laughs> yeah. I need to listen to that one, too. I'm sorry I couldn't make that, that, that That's episode. That's all right. But, uh, wow. but yeah. Fun, fun times. I had a good time, and yeah, send that list so I can watch some older movies. I need to, I need to catch up on some of those.